0: It's good to be in the house of the Lord, but, you know, when you're real busy in life and you got all kinds of things going on, it's kind of a weird thing to come into the house of the Lord and to try to chill out and to refocus for a moment, isn't it? It's kind of tough. Everyone in here is busy, right? This is wedding season for me, so as a DJ, it's like every weekend, you know, I'm booked out and busy, and, and I love it, and God blesses me through that, and He, you know, provides for my family, but... Uh, Man, it's chaotic. You don't see your wife all the time and your kids and you're busy and you're always doing something and you've got church and everything else that you're doing in your life. You know how it is. And uh, it's just real challenging. So uh, I'm really, really glad to be with you last weekend. I, I couldn't be here because I had back to back jobs, one on Saturday and one on Sunday. And uh, you know, I, I discovered that it really pays a toll on me when I'm not at church. I feel it. Um, there's just there's power in the assembly. God works in the assembly of his people. And, uh, and it's, pretty, it's a pretty amazing thing. And uh, my heart breaks for those who, who do not commit themselves to being at church normally. And I know there's work and there's things that come up, but so many times we just don't come because we just don't want to come. And uh, we really miss out. And, and one day away, I tell you, if I took two, three, four weeks off, I can't even imagine the kind of man that I would become. It's just amazing how God works through this vehicle where he imparts and shares with us and opens up his means of grace to us. We need the assembly. We need the church. We need one another. We need to hear the word of God read. We need to pray together. We need to hear the word of God taught together. We need to celebrate communion together. We need this far more than we can ever imagine. We do, right? We do. Amen. And I feel it. When I get one Sunday off, boy, I just... I'm a mess Monday. I'm a real mess Tuesday, Wednesday. Then i got to write a sermon. I don't even know how to enter into that. You know, I feel like I'm just so distant. And so it's it's a tough, challenging thing. And please pray for me, if you could. You know, if you could remember to pray for your elders here at this church and pray for your pastor. You know, we planted this church over a year ago, and, and everyone that serves in this church, the elders, including me, we're all bivocational. We all work jobs. And have to make a living, and and we want to do this church thing more than anything else, and it's just hard when your time is divided. We have families that need us, and it's tough, so just pray for us. Would you guys commit yourselves to praying for the leadership of this church? I hope you already have, and I hope you are. I I need your prayers. I do. Well, I quit uh, giving you my testimony, but it's good to be with you guys, and uh, this morning we're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we're going to be looking at uh, verse 23b, the second half of 23, and we're going to move all the way through to 33. We'll look at 33, then we'll pause there. Acts 10, you could just focus on 23 if you want, I'll start reading at the second half of it, and then like I said, we're going to go all the way through 33, just to get you up to speed a little bit. I don't think I need to spend a lot of time doing this because most of you guys are here pretty regularly. doesn't look like we have any visitors today and I wish we did. I love it when people come visit our church but uh, we can always pray for that. But let me give you just a little brief background again so we can get you up to speed. Uh, Cornelius, a Roman centurion who lived in Caesarea, received an angelic vision which included instructions to find the apostle... Uh, Peter and Yopa, and then to bring him back to his house so that he could hear him speak. In the vision, it's like, hey, Cornelius, I want you to send for the apostle Peter. He's down in Yopa, and I want you to bring him back uh, to your house and to your household. And so he sent men down there to go fetch Peter, and while the servants were traveling, Peter received a vision uh, during lunchtime prayer. In his vision, he was shown a giant tablecloth with various kinds of animals on it, and then he was instructed by the Lord in the vision to kill and to eat these animals. To kill and to eat these animals. Now, some of the animals, however, were considered unclean and common. Uh, They didn't meet the Jewish dietary restrictions, if you will. They were animals that the Jews would not use for food. So Peter refused to obey in the vision. I mean, the vision was very real to him. He could see it. It was tangible. And in the vision, he's instructed to eat these animals, and he refused to obey. He said, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean or even touched anything unclean my whole life, and I cannot do it. And he was instructed three times to kill and eat. The vision was actually meant to expose Peter's prejudices against non-Jewish people, what we call Gentiles, Peter had been taught his whole life to abstain from eating certain kinds of animals and from associating with certain kinds of people, Gentile people, non-Jewish people. Bottom line, Peter's evangelistic beliefs did not square with God's worldwide redemptive plan. God had planned an eternity past to save people from every tribe and tongue, I always quote this passage, Revelation seven nine, where John gets a vision of heaven and he sees multitude, a vast multitude of people, so many that he can't count, and there are people of every color, every ethnic background, of every language, every tongue, in the presence of God worshiping. God's plan is to save people; is to save, was and is to save people from every tribe and tongue. And Peter's evangelistic beliefs—he knew that he had been told to go out and to preach the gospel and to disciple people, but. Because of his prejudices, his evangelistic beliefs just didn't square with God's worldwide plan. He still had that Jewish mindset of thinking that man's salvation is just for the Jews and maybe for the half-Jews or someone who even looks like a Jew. If they don't represent a Jew, then they just fall short. It's not in God's grand scheme of things. That was the way that he thought. And the vision was meant to expose and correct Peter's thinking because God was about to use him to bring the gospel into the Gentile region of Caesarea, which was up north, a Roman province. As Peter was pondering the vision, Cornelius' men literally arrived at the house that he was staying at. He was staying with a guy named Simon the Tanner, a guy who made animal skins out of dead animals and did this sort of task and this sort of job. That was his career. He was down staying with this guy, and as he's in the midst of this vision and and pondering what it means, he's trying to make the parallel. He's trying to figure out what am I not supposed to eat? Am I supposed to reach other people? What am I supposed to do with this? He's trying to figure it out. And Cornelius's men show up right at the same time. He's pondering. They called out to Peter, and Peter was told that they were down there, and he went downstairs, off the roof, to chat with them, to have a conversation. And they told him about Cornelius and invited him to come to Caesarea to speak to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel. Now, Peter could tell that these men were not Jewish. He could just tell by their appearance, by their clothing, by the way that they spoke. He knew that they were not like him. They were not Jewish. He knew that they were Greek, Romans, Gentiles. He knew that they were foreign and he immediately figured out that the vision symbolized something great. He immediately figured out that, man, the vision has to have something to do with these foreign guys that are here. So that vision had nothing to do with food. It had to do with foreign people. And it is my task to preach the gospel to foreign people. I cannot exercise prejudice against them. God calls no, no man, no woman, no child unclean. God does not look at people as common. God Desires to save people from every tribe and tongue. He figured this out. Right there in that moment, he figured this out. Miracle of God's grace. He knew what it symbolized, and he agreed to go with them. But they had to wait because it was late. It was into the evening. It was probably... I don't know, three, four, five Jewish evening began at about three o'clock. So to them, that was late. So it was probably, uh, I don't know, maybe one, two, three, four, somewhere in there. It was late to them, and they decided not to make the journey back. It was dangerous to travel at night. Now, this is where we pick up in 23B to 33. This is where we pick up. You're all up to date. You're all up to speed. You get a kind of, you're in your mind's eye. You can see it playing out. He's met with these guys. He's talked with them. This is where we pick up. I'll read, pray, and we'll get to work. 23B. Just after, so he invited them. It says, the next day, the word of God says, the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Yopa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives And close friends, 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. Woe, 26, but Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone um, of another nation, But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked, then, why do you, why have you sent for me? 30, and Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in the house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Yopa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Father God, we need a fresh word from you today. I need a fresh word from you today. These people, these beloved, need to hear from you today, Lord. We need to hear from you every moment. You sustain our lives through your word. God, I pray that we would humble ourselves now in this time, recognize that we have stopped up ears and busy, busy lives, and we are distracted and by just the simplest of things. God, we acknowledge those things before you. We are flesh. God, help us in this moment to pay attention to you, to listen to you, to learn from you, to be changed by your word, to become different people, people who seek to glorify you in every moment, people who seek to advance your cause of the great gospel in this terrible, sinful, fallen world of which we belong to in so many ways. Help us today, Lord, transform us, transform our thinking, change our hearts, change our minds, turn us towards you, point us to you, speak to us, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at each verse. The last couple of times I've taught in Acts, we've had to tackle paragraph, but this time we can look at it verse by verse rather than paragraph form. So, uh, what are we going to begin with? 23b, the next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Miopa accompanied him. Stop there. The following morning, Peter rose and went with them. They began the 50-mile, two-day journey north to Caesarea. The verse says that some of the brothers from Yopa accompanied them. Who were these brothers? Do you see it there in your Bible? It says some of the brothers from Yopa went with them. Who were these guys? They weren't sisters. It says brothers. Verse 45, down in verse 45, it says they were of the circumcised. Right there in our chapter, verse 45, they were of the circumcised. This means that they were either Messianic Jews, Jews who had been converted to Christianity, or Messianic Hellenists, Greek Jews who had been converted to Christianity. The brothers lived in Yopa and probably attended the church there. They may have originally lived in Jerusalem and then fled when Saul persecuted the church. Or they may have lived in Yopa the whole time and maybe got converted when old Philip, the deacon Philip, went there and preached the gospel several years prior. In any case, we really don't know who these guys were. We just know they were brothers in the Lord. They were friends of the gospel and friends to Peter and friends to the Christian church. They were supporters of Jesus Christ and his cause. And some of them went with Peter some of them went up with Peter, and with, along with Cornelius's men, to Caesarea. And I just find that to be so very interesting. I wonder if they wrestled with the same things that Peter wrestled with. This idea that salvation was just for their types. And, and maybe Peter shared his vision with them and said, Man, we're supposed to go reach all people. And these men were like, Well, let's just go and see what that looks like. Let's see how that plays out. Are you sure, Peter? Are you sure that's what we're supposed to do? It's interesting. In any case, some of these men of the circumcised group went with Peter and Cornelius's men to Caesarea. Very interesting. I think the fact that they all went together up to Caesarea, they took that journey, just goes to show that Peter was ultimately obedient, too. Sure, he resisted what the Lord had said for him to do the first time, the second time, and even up to the third time. How many times have you done that? Are you kidding me? As I said two weeks ago, aren't you glad Jesus isn't a three strikes kind of Messiah? That's strike three, Phil. One more and you're done. Well, we've learned from Peter's example, consistent example, back in the Gospels and here that it's not the way the Lord works. The Lord's grace and mercies are infinite towards his children. They never expire, they never cease, they never run out. Doesn't mean that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit and grieve Jesus Christ himself. But he is merciful towards us. And the fact that Peter got up the next morning... And you know, he probably could have wrestled with this again throughout the night. Have you ever had that happen to you where God says do something and you agree to do it and then you've got a little bit of time in between when you're supposed to do it and who comes and knocks on the door of your heart and starts whispering lies to you trying to dissuade you from doing it, the devil? This might have been a sleepless night for Peter. He may have wrestled with this all night long. He may have been thinking, man, is, is that what I'm really supposed to do? I don't know. I don't know what happened throughout the night. Well, we can see what happened in the morning, can't we? He went. He went. How many of us would just get the Lord's command and, and, and wrestle with it for a moment, then agree, and then walk 50 darn miles? I, I don't even like walking to College Market. Of course, God isn't instructing me to go down there and get anything to drink or anything, but, I mean, think about that. That's a long journey. That's like walking to what? Merced? I never go to Merced. There's common people there. I'm not going to go preach the gospel there. Right? Think about that. What obedience he exercises here. It's fascinating. Somehow, Peter always ends up landing on doing the right thing, even after the struggle. He really does represent all of us in that, doesn't he? We wrestle with these things. We struggle with them. We resist. And then the Lord prevents. See, that was you getting a message from the Lord saying, turn your phone off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, he amends his own error. Let's look at 24. 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. So it took them basically all day and all night to get there. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Man, when they entered Caesarea and arrived at Cornelius' house, they found Cornelius. He was like a Labrador with a bone in his mouth right at the door. (laughs) Throw it! He was waiting, he was anticipating this moment. Man, he was right there waiting. And guess what? He wasn't idle because from the time he got the vision and his men left, he went out and gathered up everyone he knew and loved and cared about. Man, he didn't sit at his house and twirl his thumb or play with a Rubik's Cube or stay on Call of Duty all night. He, man, he went out and said, man, I, something's going to happen. I got a vision, and I was told to send for this guy, and I did, and they're on their way back. Whoa, holy crap, this is going to be amazing. You need to come to my house and chill for a little bit and see what this guy has to say. He went out and found, it says, his close relatives and his close friends. Well, he wasn't an idle man. He didn't just sit there, well, I can't wait to get my blessing. No, he wanted everyone that he knew to share in this blessing with him if there was going to be a blessing. And I think because it was an angelic vision, he knew there was going to be some kind of blessing. It was going to be good because it was of the Lord. He went out, and gathered all kinds of people up, grabbed them, snagged them, invited them over. Probably had them there all night. Probably put out some flat bread, some lamb kebabs. They made something out of this thing. They were about to have fellowship with with this guy, man, and he was coming on behalf of the Lord. They were excited. Brought all these people back. It's a principal truth here. We don't want to miss this. In terms of ministry and evangelism, we should always begin with our own relatives and close friends. Always. They are the ones that we should first seek to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are the ones that we should first invite to church. Our church should be filled with our relatives and close friends be. Months ago, I had a conversation with Jim Applegate, the pastor of Redeemer. He told me that they were going to move out of this building to a larger location. And I said, have you outgrown your space? And he said, yes, we need a larger location that can accommodate the family members of our people. At first, I was perplexed by by his answer because I thought, aren't we just supposed to go out and reach all the lost and people we don't know and all this? That's the first thing that crossed my mind. Why would you just build a bigger place where we can all just come hang out? And then I got to this text three days ago, and I appreciated his answer. Our relatives, our family members, our close friends should be the ones that we begin with, with the ministry of Jesus Christ. We need to be very careful not to neglect the Lord's command to first spread the gospel in Jerusalem, which means to our immediate family members and to our relatives and then to our friends and then to our co-workers and schoolmates and townsmen. That's the order. That's how it begins. That's the ripple effect. Jesus said, Preach the gospel in Jerusalem and move out from there. For us, Jerusalem isn't just Modesto. It's your house. Before it's your town and neighborhood, it's your house. And then it's your relatives' house. And then it's your friends' homes. And now you can begin to do it in other places. You see the principal truth in Scripture, don't you? You see what Cornelius did. we need to be very, very careful not to neglect the Lord's command to spread the gospel in Jerusalem, which is literally right there in our own homes, in our relatives' homes, our friends' homes. When we think of evangelism, we think of sharing the gospel with people that we do not know or faintly know. When we think of You know, we think of, when we think of evangelism, we think of foreign missions and reaching indigenous people groups. But the Bible says begin with those you do know and then move out from there. Cornelius was obviously (laughs) excited about what God was going to say and do through Peter to the point that he wanted those that he cared about to come share in the experience and to be. Are you excited about the work of God at RHC? Are you excited about what he is teaching us here? Do you want your families, relatives, and closest friends to be blessed as you are being blessed? Invite them to come. While writing this, I literally, right there when I got to that part, I literally stopped and called my, ever been to this church. She's not a church person. She's becoming one. She's over at St. Joseph's learning all kinds of fascinating things from Catholicism. Like if you don't join the church, you can't be saved. If you don't attend regularly, you can't be saved. If you drop out of catechism, you can't be saved. In fact, you're not saved, you're being saved. Right now, as you pray and seek the Lord. And then once you can, you know, you know, go through these four or five different steps, then you can do communion. And then after that, then you can do confession. And then after you're done this whole process of dragging up your whole past and bringing all your documents and information and everything before us, we'll give you the stamp of approval. Then you're saved. That's what she's learning over there. I can't even tell you how that makes me feel. God, at that moment, said, "Call your mother, invite her to church. Ah, she's going to say it's Protestant. It's all right, we are protesters of those kinds of things. We love the grace of God." And I called her and I talked to her for about an hour on the phone. She said she'd come the second week of June. I said I'm going to hold you to it. I'm going to be like Cornelius at your front door at 9:50. The bone in my mouth. Let's do this. I want her to come. I'm excited about the work that the Lord is doing here. I'm excited about what he's teaching us. Yeah, I'm like anyone else. I go through these periods where I get like into a little bit of a valley and a lull. But I am excited about what God is doing here. I have been so richly blessed by this entire experience. Not just writing sermons, but by you and by the interaction. and By being loved by you and cared for by you and encouraged and prayed for. And the interaction we have. And watching you all love each other. What? An experience this is. I want people in my own family and closest friends to come here and to see Jesus in the way that he works and functions and operates here. I want it real bad. So often all I think about are these neighborhoods over here and all these people that I don't know. And those are the ones that we need to go after. Are they? Absolutely. But what kind of stewardship, bad stewardship is it just to go after a whole bunch of people you don't know and you don't even have your own family? We need to begin with our own. And and maybe they resist that. Maybe they say, it's not for me. You're trying, aren't you? You know? You're trying, right? You're asking. You're seeking. You're encouraging them. I'm really, really praying that my mom comes. It's been fascinating talking to her, you know, because she begins to unpack Catholic theology, and then I counter it with... <laughs> And I'm like, be gracious. I'm thinking, you know what I'm talking to. Don't take, she's exploring right now. She's interested in Christ. She says she knows Christ. He's her savior and stuff. Don't do any damage. You know, don't, just don't, you don't have to be fearful or scared, but just, just share with her. And whenever you hear error, what are we supposed to do? Correct it in love. And so after we're done, it's the first time I've really been able to evangelize somebody like that and have them not like give me a one finger peace sign or call me a name. Now she hangs up and says, thank you for sharing God's word with me. I appreciate you. I'm so glad that you know more about it than I do. And I'm like, hey, not much, let me tell you. She's open to it. I told my wife, I said, I feel like a fool. All these years I've spent pastoring and doing this and, and really haven't reached out to my mom too much. Every time we've had conversations, conversation, she's never been abrasive or against it, but she's just not open to it. And so I've just decided that I would say what I could when I could and kind of live it out in front of her. But I felt like, gosh, she got snatched up by the Catholic Church. You know, she's being taught all this false doctrine and everything. My wife said, you've been a good example, too. I didn't feel like it. Anyways. Yeah, I think uh, I've trained myself over the years that what I'm doing right now is what ministry looks like, and so this is how I'm supposed to deal with everyone. So if I'm not doing this, I'm not doing it. You can't do this to somebody on the street. Sit down over there in that chair. Bring a pulpit with you. Put it up. <laughs> That's stupid. I myself would walk away from that. <laughs> Unless they have something interesting to say. Right? And I want my mom to know Jesus. And I want her to, to believe in, the, in God's word. I want her to come to church and to experience what we're experiencing together. It's amazing. Ah, amazing. I hope that that's your, your desire. I hope that you know that you need to begin with your own families. And, and some of you do this so extraordinarily well. If you get one Rogers you get all the Rogers. They bring everyone. Mike Boyd has consistently brought people. Brenda has brought people. Some of you guys really, really work at that and you are always inviting and and trying to bring your family down here and your closest friends. And I think we all need to commit ourselves to that. I will never be frustrated or Angered or goofed up over the fact that this place is just filled with a bunch of family members. I'm not going to say, we need to make room for non-family members. Hold me accountable on this. I'm never going to do that. I'm fine with our church being filled with our family. Because guess what? We'll equip our friends and relatives and closest loved ones for the ministry of the gospel in this community. If that's this church, that's this church. And that's who we'll be. And we will reach people outside of our family. I'll never criticize that if this place is filled with our own. Never. I'm praying for it. Praying for it. So, pray my mom comes. Please. I'm going to be praying for you that you're bold enough, that you're excited enough, that you're pumped enough for Jesus, that you will work to invite those you know. And maybe you don't have a lot of family members in the area, and maybe you don't have a lot of close friends. Invite somebody. Do it. Let's get them in here so they can be blessed. Well, let's look at 25. When Peter entered, this is where <laughs> I, just let me just say, I've just held Cornelius up, you know, and just been so fascinated by him and, and the kind of man and character that he had and his love for God. And you know, obviously he didn't know Christ yet, and he was seeking God because of the grace of God and Christ and all that. He's just been a mind-blowing guy. But verse 25 brought me back to reality. I love it. It says when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and gave him a high five and said, I'm glad you're here. No, it actually says he met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. (laughs) This is bad, man. Cornelius fell prostrate, dropped himself out of reverence before Peter. And it doesn't say he just bowed before him. It says that he worshipped him. He worshiped him as a God. Why? Well, the text doesn't say. But I suspect that Cornelius was overly excited about the apostles' visit. Cornelius had probably heard about Peter and his leadership role, head apostle, and heard about his preaching and the miracles and miracle powers that he had. I don't know, maybe that's what got him all railed up and fired up for Peter, or maybe The vision he received concerning Peter you know, from that angel caused him to exalt Peter up too high. We don't know why Cornelius did what he did, but the fact is he didn't handle this first moment with the apostle well. This was an awkward moment. It had to be. I don't think I've ever had anyone bow to me and worship me. I don't recall ever experiencing that. I certainly have wanted people to do that throughout my life. Especially in high school. You make a sports play or say something witty, you know, and you want everyone to kind of bow to you and kiss your ring. I didn't have rings, but I would have put one on, you know. I've just never had anyone do anything quite like that. I don't even know how I would respond to it. That'd be just like, oh my goodness. I'd probably just turn and walk away. Or I'd probably stand there and go, can we get anyone else to do it? You know, I mean, I don't know. This must have been awkward. This must have been weird. But in all honesty, what we're seeing here in the text is a form of pastor idolatry. That's what we're seeing. This happens all the time today. Christians put their pastors on high pedestals and then worship them through their actions. They do. No Christian, if you cornered him and said, man, you worship that guy down there at that church. I've seen it. No one would ever admit to that. I do not. But our actions seem to prove otherwise at times. I want to give you like seven examples or ways, seven warning signs that you might be a pastor worshiper. Okay? This is going to be probably not fun, but I don't know. I hope it is. I'm going to say you might be a pastor worshiper. I'm not going to say you might be a redneck, even though for whatever reason I've got a southern accent right now. That's the weirdest thing. And I spent all those years around ants, and everything he had was a southern drawl. Killed me. Bring me back to California, Lord, where we talk like this. I don't know how we talk, we talk like this, bro. Seven warning signs that you might be a pastor worshiper. All right, number one, you might be a pastor worshiper. If you have a favorite pastor, <laughs> right? Oh, I go over to Blingo the Bongo Church over there on J Street, and I'll tell you what, they got some good pastors over there, but Fred Wilson's my favorite. I love Fred Wilson. I love Buck Bronson. I like Jim Stewart over there. Boy, that's my favorite one. Are you kidding me? The Bible says show no favorites. If you have a favorite pastor, that's the lingo, the language you use when you think of this guy that preaches the word, and does his ministry and all that, man, you're probably a worshiper of him. I got my favorite pastor right there in my pocket. (laughs) You might be one if you have a favorite pastor. Seriously. And this is why churches are to be led by a plurality of elders. To guard against, man, I like him. I don't like him, 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 him. He's cool, him, him, him. But I like that guy right there. That's not the way we're supposed to live out our faith. Doesn't mean that you can't have a special, you know, feeling for one guy in particular. I like the way he teaches. That's my preference. I like the line-by-line. Line. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can't you can't just, you know, I've got my favorite. That, that's That's my man right there. All the other ones... Yeah. Oh, this one over here is my man. That's what happens when you start talking like that to somebody. Then they all start identifying their favorites. Next thing you know, you got this weird thing going on where you're picking from all these pastors and everyone's got these favorites. There's always one guy left out. Nobody likes me? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Number two, you might be a pastor worshiper if you boast about your pastor to others rather than boast about the work Jesus does through him. Boy, let me tell you that... that, uh, that Jack Johnson over there at that church man, that guy can preach, yeah he also sings but he's an amazing preacher and it's just unbelievable how he preaches the word, he's such a talent this is one thing that makes me sick, I hear this and nobody's ever said this to me but I've heard it said about others. he's a gifted communicator what is he, Tony Robbins? right? what does he sell real estate? a gifted communicator? if you boast about a pastor and you don't ascribe the work that he does and what he does to Jesus Christ you are a pastor worshiper you've misunderstood you've got some ignorance not understanding that it's Jesus Christ who's working through that man it ain't him if he's left to himself he ain't nothing more than a big pile of dung you gotta be real careful here with this I hear this junk all the time If I find out any of you are doing it about me, I'll rejoice at first because I've got flesh. And then I'll realize, what a fool. Don't you say those things about me. Please. I wonder how much judgment we bring upon the men of God when we talk about them these ways and stuff. Who knows what what happens here behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. We're not supposed to boast about people. We're only supposed to boast in the Lord. That's it. That's it. It's okay if your pastor's a great preacher and all that, but say, you know what, my pastor's a a gifted preacher, and let me tell you what the Lord does through him when he preaches. Now, that's good stuff, but you're not just leaving it on him. We make it about the man. Number three, you might be a pastor worshiper if you compare your pastor to other pastors. Kind of covered that a little bit. I got my favorites, or he's a way more. I used to hear this all the time at my last church. This guy right here, man. Let me tell you, that guy can preach the word. These other guys are okay. Or man, you know, uh, you know, uh, Jim Johnson over there. He's, you know, he's like a, another guy over here at this place, but he's a lot better. And I mean, what are we doing here? What are we saying here about these men of God? About. The gospel and about Christ's kingdom and about the workings of God and the things that belong to him. What are we saying about these? Do we ourselves not belong to him? What are we saying about these people? Oh, my pastor's way better than your pastor. You think that it's silly, and it is, but it's happening, man. It happens. We compare, don't we? And guess what? Whoever it is that you think is better than all the other ones, you're probably a worshiper of him more so than a student under his leadership. Number four, you might be a pastor-worshiper if you regularly give your pastor shallow compliments, what I like to call lip service. That was a great sermon. Man, that really, let me tell you, that was that was intense. Or I really like what you've done with your hair. In Bruce's case, I really like what you haven't done with your hair for about 15 years. It's gone. It's a parking lot. Mine's going too. This comes out and this goes bye-bye. It's like, what the heck? Think about that for a moment. When you give your pastor regular, shallow compliments. We are so good. We are masters of lip service. Let me just tell you, that was cool. You know what we ought to say as pastors in response? What was cool about it? Well, the way you did this, this, and this. No, 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 no. What did you learn through that? How did God move you and work in your life during that song that you're saying was the best song since sliced bread that I just sang? You know, those kind of comments, those little shallow lip service comments like, you're really good, or those little tiny things. Let me tell you something right now. Do you know what the devil does with those things? He makes men prideful when they hear them. He does. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of Rick Warren, but I like something he said about 10, 12 years ago. And he said, I don't receive receive criticism or compliments. I don't take either of them. I stay right in the middle. Compliments cause me to get prideful, and criticism causes me to be defeated. There's wisdom in that statement. We need to be really, really cautious in how we... Is it wrong to commend someone for doing a fine job for the Lord? Absolutely not. But there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And shallow compliments and lip service, that was good. Those little things that end right there, they're not good for a man to hear or anyone else. And so if that's what you do every Sunday, you go up and give them a high five and say, that was great, like Frosted Flakes. Man, that's a, that, 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 that might mean that you're a pastor worshiper. You ought to actually, let me tell you something, one of the most encouraging things a pastor can ever hear is how God has worked through him in your life. Pastors don't want to hear about how good he did. Some of them do. Pastors want to hear about how God's working in your life. Pastors need to be affirmed at times. We don't need the praises of men. We don't even need the affirmation of men. Just go ask any of the Old Testament prophets. They didn't receive it. But it is nice and it is, it is constructive and it can build up a man when somebody from the congregation goes to him and actually tells him how God has been at work through him in their life. That's a good thing to do. Describe what's happening. Don't just say that was good. Number five, you might be a pastor worshiper if you entertain thoughts about ditching church when your pastor is not in the pulpit. Well, Fred Wilson's not preaching this Sunday, so I think that's a good time to get caught up on Deep Space Nine. (laughs) I've never watched one episode of that. And I've ditched church for that very reason. Boy, if you entertain thoughts and, man, I I just found out. They literally, at our old church, they used to, they used to, you know, everyone was very open with their calendars and everything. And if they found out so and so wasn't working, then half the Dane Church wouldn't show up. Unbelievable. So they quit announcing when who takes this guy takes a vacation. This guy goes over here and does that because they didn't want people to ditch. If you even entertain the idea, if you say to yourself, "Oh, Fred Wilson's not here, Phil's not here, Colby's not here," man, that's a, I'm going to bounce. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be there. If you entertain those thoughts. What does that say about your heart towards that man who's just trying to serve Jesus? Oh, guess what? It's all about Jesus. No, actually, you, what you're saying in your heart is it's all about him because you won't even go to church and be with the fellowship of the saints and hear a sermon by some other gifted man and, and be a part of all these means of grace that we've been talking about, and hallelujah, and over. They're just great. They want to invite people in. You're not even going to be a part of that. Why? Because guess what? You worship that pastor. You worship that preacher. Because you're not even willing to bring yourself before the altar because guess what? He's not there. Number six, you might be a pastor worshiper if you ditch church. <laughs> because your pastor is not in the pulpit. Not just entertaining the thought of doing it, which I think we've all done. But if you actually go through with it and say, I'm not going to be there and ditch. What's that say about you and your Strange affection and fixation on that person, and we should not ditch. We should never. It says in Hebrews, we should never forsake the assembly. We need the assembly more than we know, and we should not forsake it just because Joe Schmo, the senior pastor, ultimate preacher there, wow, is not there. That whatever it is that Sunday, he's not there, so I'm not going. Or well, we're going to do something different in our church. We tried to assemble. We did. We assembled with another church. And I know there was short notice and it was messy. But so many people didn't come that Sunday. They looked at it as an opportunity to be off. And how you missed out. It's too bad. You might be a pastor worshiper if you ditch church when your pastor's not in the pulpit. Number seven, last, you might be a pastor worshiper if you leave your church because your pastor left that church. Some congregates just follow men all over wherever they go. And some pastors just can't seem to land at any church. They work every church in town. They've been over here for a year and over here for six months and over there for two years or whatever. And guess who's with them? They're roadies. Can I carry your Bible? Are you in this thing for Jesus and for one another or for that man? <clears throat> This kind of thinking and these actions and these behaviors, they scare the tar out of me. That anyone would see me that way and, 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 and pursue me that way and feel that way about me and, 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 and ditch this and do this. for the, and That just scares me. If that's, if that's what I'm perpetuating here at this church, then let's just end it now. I don't want you following me. Don't worship me. Don't Be careful in how you follow me. Compare what I say and do to the scripture. And when I'm out of line, correct me in love. But I mean, these things, I know they're, 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 they seem kind of silly and all that, but they're, they're just seven things. Could we write two dozen? Yeah, I'm not just think about them. They really, really frighten me. Because somehow Satan can take the good things that are done here and, and turn them into man worship pastor worship. I'm following that pastor. I'm praising that pastor. I'm boasting about that pastor. Dang it! I haven't done my job well if that happens here. It's not like I want you to hate me. I mean, that would just be a miserable pastorate. Right? I want you to love me. We all want to be accepted and loved and and all of those things. We need each other. I'm not saying don't do that, but I hope you see Jesus through me. I hope that's who you fall in love with. That's the goal. Now, listen, pastors themselves have to be very, very careful when it comes to pastor worship and idolatry. Pastors themselves have to, not just you, we are easily entangled by these things too. In the book of Revelation, we see the Apostle John bowed before an angel twice. Fell down at an angel's feet. Colby pointed this out. I looked it up. It's like Revelation 22 and I think another time in 16. Literally sees an angel. Angel comes to him and addresses him. Ah, He falls down and starts worshiping the angel. Angel's like, dude, what are you doing? He was an apostle. I don't know. How many pastors over the centuries have bowed before pastors like Augustine and Pelagius and Luther and Erasmus and Calvin and Wesley and Spurgeon and Finney? How many pastors have taken those other pastors up and and put them up here? We have entire theological systems built upon men like this. And then when somebody challenges that theological system, we take it as an offense towards our guy, and we defend and defend and defend. What are we doing by doing all of this? We're showing that we worship some men of old, some guy that came before us. I often say if some of these guys could come back and see how it is today with their books and all that and how people respond to them, and, oh, you're going to see what John Calvin said today. Oh, I think these guys would just run for the hills. They wouldn't go, ha oh, ha-ha, oh, oh. ha-ha. Glory, yeah. They would go, "Oh my gosh, what have you created in my name?" Calvinism, really? Wesleyanism, Methodism, oh, Pelagianism, Arminianism. Actually, Jacobus would probably be like, "No, I'm just good." <laughs> I don't know if he'd be down with that. Some of them would, right? Because we're flesh. Just can't help but think that these guys would be appalled by what we do with them and where we take them and how we view them and how we focus on them. The whole time, most of these men, the whole time they were pointing to Jesus. They're pointing to the gospel and somehow they're pointing to Jesus and we're pointing at them. You know? He's going... He's going like, yeah, I don't know why he's over here. He's up here, right? He's pointing up here. And we just point at him, and we stop here. We miss what he's pointing to. See, pastors have to be real careful with this stuff. How many pastors have bowed before the Apostle Paul? (laughs) Uh, Epistles, ah. Can't believe what you wrote in 1 Corinthians. You're my dog. Catholics have bowed before the Apostle Peter. And they have literally erected an entire religion to the glory of his name. What do you think the papacy is? It's all built on him. Built on one little testimony. Peter had a special revelation from God. He could see that Jesus was the Christ, the living son of God. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on that testimony. And what did they do? They built a church on top of Peter. You talk about man worship. That whole religion is all about human, human to human worship. You erect an entire religion upon it. it, erected a memorial to Peter. And they continue to do so through popes and priests. Pastors even do this with the Bible. <laughs> the new craze today is the red letter movement. Oh, red letter stipulates that the church will really only succeed if we get back to the teachings of Jesus, those red letters, the Gospels. If we focus on those things and those things alone because we spend all this time focusing on the Pauline letters or something else, if we could just get back to what Jesus did and said, then we can advance the cause of Christ rightfully. So what it says. It's time to get back to Jesus. For too long, the church has interpreted the Gospels through Paul's writings. It's time to get back to Jesus. Well, this philosophy, methodology, whatever you want to call it, implies that the rest of Scripture is irrelevant and insufficient. We just got to look at those red letters, not the rest of it. The black letters are no good. Well, let me give you an example of what happens when you do this. Have you ever heard of the Metropolitan Church? The Metropolitan Church, very, very large Christian organization, denomination. I don't know what you want to call it, some kind of an Asian. Literally, they focus only on the Gospels, only on what Jesus taught. And since Jesus did not openly condemn homosexuality, they advocate for it. We need the whole counsel of God's Word, not just the Gospels. In fact, the difference between what Paul taught and what Jesus taught was when Jesus taught, it was pre-cross gospel. What Paul taught was post-cross gospel. That's the difference. One's talking about, I'm going to get there and it's going to happen. One, the other one's talking about, this is what happened. That's the difference. They both preach the same gospel, friends we need paul's writings we need we need jesus's teachings we need the whole of scripture we need leviticus we even need those chronological orders you're thinking oh no Hebab and who-bab and hukinab who and yeah we need them why cuz it's in the word of god it all points to christ but pastors do this i'm just to be about jesus red ladder Well, I'm just about Paul, or I'm just about this, or I'm just about that. All of this stuff is so incredibly dangerous. Idolatry in any form can destroy a local church body. Why? Because God does not tolerate idolatry and will not hesitate to snuff out a church's lampstand. He will not. And you say, but there are churches... Everywhere, all over throughout the world, all over our community, all over our state, nation. There are a lot of churches out there that are extremely idolatrous. You must be wrong because they're idolatrous and yet they still exist. God isn't snuffing them out. Friend, I say there are plenty of buildings out there with church signs on them and people in them, but they are not churches, not in the true sense. They might be gathering and doing all sorts of things in Jesus' name, but that doesn't mean that God is with them God is not with those who worship men. In fact, his wrath is being stored against them, whether they're in something called a Christian church or not. Have you not read the Old Testament and saw what God has, how he has responded to idolatry over and over and over? We have a jealous God. He's not to be trifled with. God is not with those who worship men. Now look at 26. Obviously, he wasn't allowed to stay in this prostrate position. It says 26, but Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Peter literally put hands on him, it says in the text there. He didn't just tell him to get up. He actually helped him up. He actually grabbed his arm. Maybe his neck. Maybe his tunic. Maybe by the hair. Get up! says Peter lifted him up. He literally put hands on him. He said basically, bro, I am a man like you. Now this could have been an extraordinarily tempting moment for Peter. We all seek after love and approval. We want to be acknowledged, cherished, and respected. We like it when people dote over us. We like it when they show us attention. And if we can get them to bow before us, that can be an added bonus. Peter was presented with a grand opportunity to cater to his flesh right here. Any Pharisee or legalist would have jumped at the opportunity. Why? Because they love the praises of men. That is how they become temporarily satisfied in the flesh. But Peter stood his ground. Why? Because Peter had Jesus. His identity, his value, his security were in Christ. Peter did not need the approval of men. He was approved by his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he says, get up. He didn't stand there and absorb any ounce of that praise or worship. I don't need that from you, he thought in his mind. He must have. The Lord has approved of me. It's an amazing example we see here. Ignorance is ultimately is what ultimately leads us into idolatry. If we do not understand what we have in Christ, then we will seek to be satisfied by people, things and even by ourselves, the things that we can do for ourselves. Christ truly is our all and all. All that we need is in Him. Do we believe that? And are we willing to explore what that means? Instead of running from person to person, thing to thing, and from experience to experience, instead of doing those things, we should put our energy into seeking the Lord who has already approved of us. All that we have in need is in Him. No one will love you more than Him. No one will provide more for you than Him. No one will extend grace to you like he does or mercy to you. His mercies are new every day. No one can give you strength like him, power like him, victory like him. No one. Companionship like him, friendship like him, intimacy with him. No one can give you what he can give you. Only he can give it to you. Do we believe that? We should spend our energy seeking him. In fact, at the turn of this year, our church resolution, you might remember it was, we wanted to, this year for 13, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To what? To the glory of God. Because we realize he's it. The buck stops with him. If we chase after people and... And chase after all of these other things for identity and security and value and all that. We will be left empty. That's the truth. At 43 years, I know it's the truth. Because I have ran after everything. I still do today sometimes. I try to find my value in this. I try to find my security in that. I try to find something in this or something in this person or whatever. I am always seeking after something. And I need to remember every day and every moment. It's all in Christ, Phil. Seek him. Pray right now in this moment. Open the word. Believe that it's all in him. In a really cool way, Peter did not absorb this moment and take this moment and decide to take these accolades and this worship onto himself. Why? Because he was in Christ. He said, get up. I'm a man. He could have said, stay down there for a little while. This feels good. This really caters to my flesh. Thank you for that type of encouragement. He didn't do that at all. How are we doing with our resolution? How are we doing with pursuing the Lord? What lesser things have we been pursuing and trying to find satisfaction in? Ask yourself that question. What have you been going after? And how have you been left empty? Me something to consider during our communion time. Peter basically told Cornelius, paraphrase, get up, I'm just a man, don't worship me, I'm in Christ. Look at 27 to 29. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 29, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? When Peter entered Cornelius' house, he noticed that there were many persons gathered. The house was full of Gentile people. Notice the humility and transparency before Peter's opening comments. Peter said, paraphrased, Literally, this is what he was conveying. This is what he was communicating. You guys know how unlawful it is for a Jew like me to hang out and commiserate with people like you. But God has shown me that I should not be prejudiced towards you because there are no common or unclean people. That is what Peter just told these people. Look at that transparency. Look at that humility. This is amazing what you're seeing in this text. This is a testimonial, this is powerful. In a way, Peter revealed to them that his original intention when he got the vision was not to come because his tradition prohibited him from doing so. Peter basically confessed his sin against them right here at this very moment. I wasn't going to come because I'm not supposed to be around people like you, but God showed me that I was wrong. This is incredible what you're reading. What humility, what transparency, what fearlessness. This is how those who are secured in the finished work of Jesus Christ respond during these kinds of scenarios. They know that there is no condemnation from God towards them, so they are comfortable with revealing their folly and error to others, especially towards those or to those that they sin against. Peter didn't have anything to hide. First thing he says to them, Hey, guys. I jacked up, but God showed me my error, and now I am here. What can I do for you, he says. How may I serve you, he says. This is amazing. Is that how you live your life? With that openness and transparency? Because you're secured in Christ and approved of by him, And you know that if you mess up, if you screw up, if you sin, that it's okay for you to be open with other sinners, you can do that. Why? Because their approval doesn't matter. What matters is your position with Christ. Now, if you've sinned against somebody, you need to make that right and reconcile that. There's no doubt we're commanded to be reconcilers. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation. But how often do we come and say, you know, I had every intention of doing this, that, and the other, and I realized God, I was wrong and God corrected me and now I'm here before you and I'm sharing this with you because God has made it clear that I'm supposed to. And I want to apologize for what I've thought and how i felt about you. Only those who are secured in Christ that realize what they have in him are bold enough to do something like that. And I look at myself in the mirror and I say, is that you? And I say, no, it's not. It's very hard to go to someone and To be open and transparent. I can be at times. What an example that's been set for us here. This needs to be the desire of our heart. To be open and transparent. To acknowledge and admit our errors. The Bible says that we are to confess our sins to one another. It's not an easy thing to do. But let me tell you something right now. That is a freeing thing to do the significance of this moment of Peter being transparent this was the gateway into him presenting the gospel i do not believe that if he had not been transparent and admitted his error that he would have been equipped or prepared to preach what he's about to preach and to watch what happens with the holy spirit he would not have been in any condition to go there and do his job if he wasn't forthright and open about his own sin the gospel must be preached in humility The only way that it's going to work and take effect, the gospel that the Spirit works through and administers through and applies is given through a humble servant, one who sees their own sin first. That's what you see here. I jacked up, guys. I wasn't going to come because of who you are. And God has shown me. Did you see how it says, shown Right through the vision. How did God show him? Through that vision. The animals. The picnic blanket. Exposed his error. Showed him that none of these animals are off limits. Translation, none of the people uh, that I'm going to send you to, none of the people of the world are off limits. You need to preach the gospel to all of them. God showed him his error. And then he came and confessed it to these very people. They could have said, then get the heck out of our house. How How dare you insult us? you think you're better than us that's not at all how they respond pretty amazing wow 30 33 we're wrapping up and cornelius said here's how cornelius responded notice how he didn't say how dare you judge us that way and treat us like a bunch of pigs no they were very very open to whatever peter was going to say with that level of transparency and humility oozing out of him they were like intrigued. At this point, they're like bursting with intrigue. What's he going to say? Can you believe this Jew just came and stood before us and said what he just said? That he was judging us like that? Can you, this is going to be good. This is a humble man. It says, and Cornelius said, and Cornelius just goes into this. It's great. Four days ago, about this hour, he just gives, gives him a, kind of a rundown of his vision, right? Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house in the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. 33, so I sent for you at once. I didn't hesitate. I did what I was supposed to do. I sent for you at once. And you have been kind enough, look at that, you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we did this, I got the vision, I sent for you, you were kind enough to come. Look at you, you're humble and transparent, you're going to share something. Guess what man, now therefore, we're all here in the presence of God together. To hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This is how Cornelius responds. Cornelius replied by giving Peter the specifics of his vision. This is the second time that Luke illustrated Cornelius' prayers and good works and God's positive attitude towards him in chapter 10. Luke's repeated description does not mean that Cornelius and his house deserved God's grace as a result of his devotion and charity. It means rather that the grace of God was already active in his life as God was preparing him to hear and believe the gospel. Cornelius' prayers and good deeds could not save him. If they could, the angel would not have visited him and had Peter brought to his house to preach the good news. But his prayers and charity do show, did show, that God was at work in his life. Fear of God, earnest prayers, good deeds, charity, and love for others could be signs that God is at work in the life of a person in the life of the person who exhibits those things. These could be signs that God is preparing them to respond, to hear, and to respond to the gospel. As Christians, we need to be alert and ready to share the good news with all people, especially to those that show these signs, even if they're doing these things in some other form of religion. That's exactly what Cornelius was doing. He was wanting to be a Jew. He was mixed up in Judaism. Lastly, Cornelius told Peter, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius had no doubt that Peter had been sent by the Lord with the Lord's instructions. When Cornelius looked at Peter, he saw a man who had been sent by the Lord with special instructions for him and his household. He wanted so badly to hear what Peter had to say. He knew that it was going to be good. Because somehow, even through his religion and life, he knew that God was and is good all the time. And so he made that connection. Whatever this guy has come to do, I know it's going to be amazing. I know it's going to be powerful. I know it's going to be good because it's coming from a good God. He knew that. He wanted so badly to hear what he had to say. And he's sitting there and he's ready. He is so ready. And his entire household is ready. How many people were there? Not just his household, but his relatives and friends. This guy was a Roman centurion of the Italian cohort. He was a top leader in the Roman army. How many people did he know? How many people were friends of his? I would imagine he had a pretty big family. I would imagine he had a lot of people there that he knew and he was connected to and cared about in this house, ready. You can literally, at this point in the narrative, cut the anticipation with a knife. These people, they want to hear what God has to say. Oh, that we would have that same passion and desire when we come to Sunday worship. That you can cut the anticipation with a knife. That we are so eagerly, eagerly anticipating what the Lord would have for us during this special time and opportunity, total blessed time from him that he's provided for us. God is good. Next week, we will study Peter's sermon. We will study the work of the Holy Spirit, and we will focus on Cornelius' response. It's going to be wonderful we got to have a time of communion together where we can ponder the things that we've learned. Ponder the things that we've heard. We've heard a lot of stuff, haven't we? It's been a lot. We need to be more proactive with our own families and reaching out to them and inviting them to church. Let's build this place with our families, relatives, friends. I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing here. Man, let's display the kind of humility. Let's ask God to give it to us, to break us of our pride in those things. Give us that kind of humility where we can be transparent and open with our sin and we can be confessional Christians with one another. I mean, there are just so many different lessons to learn through this. What have we been pursuing and chasing after? We made a commitment at the beginning of the year to pursue Christ, to know him in a greater way. What have we sold out for? What are we trying to find our value, worth, approval, security in? We're all doing it somehow. Let's admit these things today. Let's ask Jesus during communion to reveal these things to us. I'm going to go sit over there and I'm going to say, what have I been pursuing? If you're earnest, honest, open, transparent with the Lord, he's going to tell you. He's going to help to get you back on track. And let's take during this moment of communion to reflect upon and remember what he did. Because of his sacrifice, and blood spilt, and resurrection, we can have life. We can have life in him, life abundant. For those of you that know him today, you do have life abundant in him. In fact, he is the only source for abundant life. I hope you know that. I hope you believe that. Let's remember what those elements symbolize. His Bloodshed is broken body for the remission of our sin. It's a finished work in him. We don't have to walk out of here trying to earn anything with him. Let's better learn to seek him and learn to rest in his grace, to embrace all that he has for us together as a church. It's going to take a church to do that. We can't do it as individuals. Let's commit ourselves to that.